Welcome back to another episode of the Better Than I Found It podcast. I'm Mike McGraw, the men's golf coach at Baylor. And joining me today is Brian Gathright, who is the director of instruction at Cordillera Ranch in Bernie, Texas. Brian and I first met almost 40 years ago at tour school, and I've really enjoyed getting to know him through the years. But he's more than just a well-respected instructor. He truly cares about his students far beyond their swing and their results on the golf course. In other words, he teaches the whole player. He also knows his stuff, and his players get better, which is the great mark of any great coach. Today, Brian will share his unique philosophies about coaching, which I really enjoyed hearing, and I know you will as well. He's truly leaving the teaching profession better than he found it. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Better Than I Found It. Uh, My guest today is a really, really good instructor from San Antonio, Texas. He's a director of instruction at Cordillera Ranch, Brian Gathright. Brian, welcome to the podcast today. Mike, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, you and I have um, known each other a long time, obviously about 40 years now. And uh, but, you know, one thing I've never asked you during that entire time is, you know, where did you grow up and how did, who were your biggest early influences? I knew you as an adult, only as an adult. I never knew you when we were young. So, you know, where did you grow up and who, who got you into the game? Well, a, a couple of things about that that are unique. I grew up in a, in a tiny town, Teague, Texas, which is uh, about 55 miles uh, east of where you're sitting right now. If you get on Highway 84 and go through Mahia, well, uh, Teague's about 10 miles beyond, uh, beyond Mahia and grew up on a nine-hole golf course. Uh, and one of my closest friends growing up and playing the game is now director of uh, golf at Austin Country Club, Dale Morgan. And uh, Dale and I grew up playing what was then Freestone Country Club and is now Tri-County Club at the Vineyards. It, at that point in time, it was a nine-hole course. Now it's an 18-hole golf course. And I'm just so, so thankful to have had two parents that uh, love the game of golf. My mom and dad both played Uh probably got the competitiveness from my mom, even though my dad was a college football player at Texas Tech. But my mom, I can remember playing fast pitch softball. And uh, we had a lot of battles when I was younger. She was was a pretty good golfer and, and more than more than anything, loved to compete. And uh, I, as a matter of fact, I told this story and I'll share it with you real quickly. Uh, a lot of guys as adults probably don't remember vividly their last spanking, but uh, I, I actually do. I grew up with a with a mom and dad that didn't mind disciplining me a little. They, thank goodness, didn't have to very often. But uh, my mom and I were playing golf one day when I, I just turned 13 years old. And uh, she was beating me on the fifth hole. And I, I was not handling it very well. And uh, <laughs> uh, I continued to kind of act like a spoiled brat that I was being at the time. And finally we hit our tee shots off the fifth tee and she just left them and turned around and drove the cart in. Well, then I started mouthing as we were going in about, you know, well that you just don't want to keep playing because you know, I'm going to, going to beat you. And by this time we're getting pretty close to the, to the putting green and we pull the cart up and we get out of the cart and uh, we walk across the, the, the putting green which is right by the windows to the pro shop and everything and 
my mom and um, as we're walking across, she said, if you say one more word, I'm going to beat your butt right here. Well, <laughs> that's where I remember that last banking quite vividly because I had to say one more word. And I'm proud to say that was the last time I back talked my mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, uh, it, that, it, that's a uh, go that's ahead. I'm a pretty good story. I like that. Uh, that respect for authority and certainly your mom. And, you know, that's that's pretty good stuff. Need more of that today. Absolutely. But uh, it, it was great to have parents that, that competed and, and understood athletics. And, you know, the one thing that they always instilled in me and I try to in my in my pupils is whatever you're going to do, try to be your best at. It. I mean, if you're going to spend the time, uh, you, you got to try to be the best that you can be. Everybody, as you know, is not going to play the PGA Tour, or the LPGA Tour that we encounter but but you know what we need to leave them uh, just like your podcast better than you found it and golly it's it's so important to um to try to instill that in our young players today that's a great philosophy you obviously learned that from your parents which is great and so you and i first met at bear creek in the dallas fort worth airport that golf course right up near the airport at the 1982 pga tour qualifying uh i remember it well uh, we played together, I think the first two rounds and I don't know what you shot. I don't know what I shot, but I know this, we're not playing golf for a living today. <laughs> we didn't thank make goodness. And, and I, I didn't come close that, those two days. I don't remember the scores, but I remember it wasn't very good for me. So I, I certainly understand that. Well, and in our paths crossed again, uh, I was in Edmond coaching high school golf and you were working at Oak tree national as an assistant pro. I don't really remember the years, but in the mid eighties, someplace. Yeah, I was there actually in 87 and 88. I started at Oak Tree working for Brent Goodger there in 1987 in January. And and then uh, shortly after the PGA Championship in, in you know, August of 88, uh, uh, Brent came to me and, and told me that that Landmark had decided to move me to PGA West to the private courses out in the desert. And, you know, it was a great opportunity uh, as far as career goes as you well know, there's no place quite as special as Oak Tree National. And I, I hated to leave there because I'd made so many friends in Oklahoma and, and certainly uh, what an incredible facility and golf course that was. But uh, it, you know, obviously we, we passed through great places in our career, just as you have. And, and certainly uh, I look back at with nothing but the fondest of memories of that, but uh, certainly it was great for my career to move on to there and, and move forward. You did. And, and being with Landmark was one of the was the corporation to work for the company, the development company to work for in golf, for sure. But eventually you decided you'd transition into teaching the game for a living. Kind of tell me how that happened. And then when that happened, who were your biggest influences that kind of got that helped you early on? Well, it, it's interesting when when I went to, you know, at Oak Tree, we really had a, a very what I would call a very good playing staff. Most of our, we gave very few to no lessons at Oak Tree. Most of our help in, in helping the members there at Oak Tree was playing golf with the members. We did a lot of that. We played a, a bunch. We competed. We took teams to pro-ams a ton. But when I moved to PGA West to the private courses, uh, Jay Coletti there really was big on us teaching. And, uh, you know, I, Mike, I ought to have to go back and give everyone their money back that took lessons <laughs> out there. I, 
I, I tried to tell them everything I knew in an hour, you know, and I, I probably could have filled that up in 15 minutes at that point in time. But, uh, but the point being was we actually learned to, to teach a lot. There was a lot of time on the tee and then um as the fs uh, fslic uh, kind of shut down landmark with the the savings and loan crisis in the late 80s uh one of the members there a, a gentleman named boyd jeffries was starting a junior golf foundation in aspen colorado and he approached me about running it and i wasn't sure at the time but i talked to a couple of members i talked to jay and they assured me that, you know, if Landmark continued on beyond that, it wouldn't jeopardize my position to go up there and run it for the summer. And I actually transitioned into it. it, it I ran that foundation in Aspen for about three and a half years, uh, was involved with it for another five or six years afterwards. And, and proud to say I went back uh, a couple of years ago for the 30th anniversary of it. But um Long story short, we grew that program into 542 kids. I had 70 plus uh, volunteer instructors. We had a travel team. We ran uh, a huge charity tournament that included the number of the top PGA Tour pros. We had Tiger Woods. We had Greg Norman come through there. Uh, Tiger early on in his career, I was I was already gone from there uh, at that point in time, but we got Tiger to come. Glenn Fry was the host, the uh, singer from the Eagles that passed away not too many years ago, and it was just an incredible event. We raised a ton of money, and through all of that, someone that you may know, Susan Watkins, that used to be uh, the women's golf coach at the University of Texas, Susan and I actually grew up her being from Corsicana, Texas, me being from Teague, we were the same age. We grew up together. She was my assistant in Aspen for a year. And Susan reached out to me and said, you know, I've heard that, that Harvey Penick may be starting a, a golf school with Golfsmith there in Austin. And she said, you'd be perfect for it. You ought to, you ought to talk to him about it and just see. And you know, it was one of those things I never wanted to leave Aspen, but I just felt like I'd kind of gone as far as I could in the in the charity foundation world and and had bigger goals. And I went down and actually interviewed and lo and behold, got the job. And I was, you know, I was hired to be the original director of instruction for Harvey Penick for his golf schools. And I, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for that opportunity. I mean, I spent hundreds of hours with Harvey. Uh, we met for eight months before we ever had our first school. I mean, that was just the, the way he wanted it done and the way, um, the right way to do things, which is that's always the way Harvey did things. And, and, um, it's just an incredible influence on my life. And there, I, I got to move to Austin and, and spend almost three years with, I, I I don't know if you'd say he's the greatest instructor in the history of the game, but I guarantee you, if you ask for the, the top two or three, his name's always going to be there. So uh, one of the great influences and, and more importantly, going back to what I know about you and, and what I love so much about you as a golf coach, you, you absolutely make, it, it thrills me to death to have players play for you because regardless of what they do afterwards and leaving, whether it's going on to play professional golf or just being a, a, a citizen and a dad and a role model, I know they're going to be influenced by, by Mike McGraw the rest of their life. And I, I genuinely mean that that's not a, uh, not something I take lightly. And, and I put you in high esteem with RV in that regard. 
Well, thank you very much. That That is an amazing story to get to spend three years with Harvey Penick. Um, I mean, truly, he's he's an icon in, in your world of, of teaching. There's no question. And I can't imagine how much you how much information you gleaned from him, how much wisdom. Uh, just having read all of his books, I know that he had very simple wisdom that went straight to the point that got right there to the matter and was just an amazing instructor for sure. You really and, and genuinely was and, and cared so much about me as well. I'd love to share a quick story. My last conversation with him was one of the most touching things I've ever seen. And it, and it truly gave you the insight into how he thought and how he believed and, and you know, what his selflessness and how he was always thinking about others. I, he had pneumonia. He was in hospice care. We knew he wasn't going to make it. It was, uh, I believe, the Friday uh, uh, before Sunday, may have been Thursday or Friday before he passed away uh, on the Sunday before the Masters. And uh, I, I knew it was going to be my last time to get to visit with him and everything. And I went by the house and uh, Helen, his wife, was like a watchdog. She she made sure you didn't stay more than your allotted five to 10 minute time and, and all of that. And they had a, a bed set up there where he could kind of look out the window and kind of see, you know, see everything outside. And obviously he was very weak, but, but still very engaged and very energetic in terms of talking with, with anyone about golf. And so I sat down with him and I visited and it's probably been seven or eight minutes and Helen came to the, to the door there and kind of stuck her head in. And I, uh, I stood up and I said, you know, Miss Phoenix, I know I've got to run. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. And Harvey started telling another story and she walked out and he motioned for me to sit back down. And I visited with him probably another five or six minutes and Helen comes to the door and she clears her voice. Like, you know, <clears throat> and I'm like, you know, Harvey, I've got to go. Miss Phoenix, I'm sorry. I don't mean to overstay my welcome. And he literally kind of raised up from where he was in his bed, just leaned forward. He gave her the, the toughest look I've ever seen him give <laughs> and told her, he said, I'm 90 years old. And he grabbed my left forearm with his right hand. I'll never forget it. And squeezed the heck out of it and said, you sit down. <laughs> and uh we probably talked mike for another hour hour and a half i mean it was like he was trying to download a computer and make sure he hadn't forgotten to tell me anything you know and he had been kind enough he actually let me take the red scribble text notebook home one time when we first were meeting about the schools and and go through everything it was incredible uh to get to see you know, the little red book, not, and, and Bud Shrake did an incredible job in writing that very much as it was. But during this conversation, probably 45 minutes into it, and it is one of the great things that anyone's ever done for me. Um, he looked at me and he held my hand. He made me actually reach and hold his hand. And he goes, I want you to promise me something. And I said, well, you know, sure, Harvey, what, what do you want me to promise you? And he goes, no, he goes, you look me in the eye and he goes, you give me your word. And I said, I was kind of joking with him as, as he always liked he had an incredible sense of humor. And I said, well, you, you're going to have to tell me what you want me to agree to here. And he goes, no, I'm really serious. I want you to promise me. And I said, Harvey, you know, there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. I, I can't tell you what I've done. And he goes, look, 
as much as I know these schools would be run exactly the way I want you to and the way I wanted them run, he goes, I want you to promise me. He said, you don't have to do it immediately, but after I'm gone, I want you to promise me that you'll go do your own deal. He said, you've earned that right and you need to go be the instructor that you need to be on your own. And uh, Mike, if he hadn't done that for me, the respect I had for him, I don't know if I'd have ever been able to leave because I'd have always felt I was letting him down. And to think literally lying on his deathbed, he was thinking about me. He wasn't thinking about himself, his legacy, his schools, nothing. He was thinking about what was best for me as a person. And I, I, I can't tell you what that did for me. It's, it's just unbelievable. Well, it opened up a whole new world for you. And selflessness is such a great quality because it all everyone else around you is always better off because it because of that attitude that you have. So that's a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you for giving me the the platform, the opportunity to. I, I can't tell you what he meant. It meant to me and and not just in golf instruction, just to make you a better person. I mean, just such an incredibly passionate uh, desire to help people, make people better. You know, this generation of young kids, they don't read books very much anymore, but <laughs> all of them, if they just went back and read the little red book, you'd see, okay, golf's a whole lot more simple than I'm making it. It's there's, there's a certain genius in simplicity. Harvey had it. He knew it. He understood it. And he was there before TrackMan and before really all the modern day things, the tools that you actually use in teaching. Uh, but you still have to harken back and go back to the simplicity he taught you, I would think. Oh, absolutely. I can remember because video analysis was just really getting popular when we started the schools back in, uh, you know, 1993. And uh, interestingly, I had this conversation with him and, and uh, we were visiting one day. Uh, just sitting there talking about how we wanted to do things. And, and uh, Harvey asked me, uh, or I asked him, I said, so what do you think about video analysis? And he, he kind of thought for a minute, he never spoke without thinking. So he sat there for a second and he goes, well, you know, I guess we need to because all our competitors are doing video analysis and everything. So we probably need to do it. And, and he said, just look into it and let me know what you think is the best, you know, best for us to do out there. And then he went on. We were talking about other things. And it was probably five minutes later. And he stops in mid-sentence and he looks at me and he goes, you know, back to that video analysis. He said, <laughs> you do know it helps a teacher a whole lot more than it ever helps a pupil to see that, right? <laughs> and Wow. That was his belief. But um, the other thing I've been asked a number of times doing various talks and interviews and things about him, I, I've been asked about how he would respond in today's world, because, you know, I've got a $22,000 3D swing catalyst and cameras everywhere and, you know, flight scope and we've got track man and we've got numbers and we've got all of this data. And I've been asked many times how he would have responded in today's technological world. And the thing I would tell you that one in that, in every conversation I had with him, but in that last conversation with him, he told me to make sure that you learn something every day about the game of golf, something's going to make you better. And I think Harvey Phoenix would have, have adapted very well to modern technology he always learned from others. And, and, you know, a lot of people don't know about him, Mike. He coached the University of Texas team for 32 years. Yeah. And 
one of the things that he said that helped him, and he told me this, that he, he thought helped him learn the most about teaching golf was when he recruited a player, he would go spend time with that player and their coach. And, and, you know, it wasn't like today's world where we can share things with video analysis, but he'd drive out, you know, wherever he was and go spend time with that player he was recruiting and their teacher and talk about what they're doing. And, and I want to tell you this, and I, this, I, I've got 32 players this year playing at 22 different schools in, in D1 and D2 golf. And the one coach that I talk to constantly about their players and look at what we're trying to do, I'm on the podcast with right now. And, and it's, <laughs> it speaks volumes to our ability to help that we're all on the same team. And that was Harvey's philosophy is the the player wants to play well. Obviously, Harvey wanted them to play well, and and the coach at home wants them to play well, and their parents want them to play well. It's all it, it's got to be a team effort, and and I commend you for that. And I can't tell you, as as a golf coach, teach slash teacher that I consider myself, I can't tell you how important that relationship is. And I I, would, I hope any young coaches and Mikel that I know is listening. I'm telling you, it's essential to us all helping these kids get better. And, and I thank you for that. Well, thank you for saying that. It's been intentional on my part. I want to know what the background of what he's being taught. I want to know what language is being spoken to him. I want to be an extra pair of eyes. I'm not a swing instructor. That's not my world anymore. I don't teach the game that way. But if a player like one of my players, Johnny Kiefer, who works with you, if he's struggling with his golf swing, I'll ask him, what are you and Brian been working on? Have you talked to Brian? And then Johnny can articulate it. And then he and I can work through it on the range. Not as if you were there, but sort of, because I know what language you're speaking. Absolutely. And it's just essential. And, and plus it, it makes the players themselves. I, I think a lot of times it puts them in an awkward situation. If you don't have that relationship and, you know, they don't need to be caught in the middle of, of something like that. And I, I think it's incredibly helpful. And I, I, I can't tell you how much it pleases me. Thank you. And I encourage every young coach or even old coach that I talk to, don't put a wallet between you and that instructor. Don't try to get in between your player and the instructor. I mean, that instructor got him to your campus. I mean, he, he must have some value, right? So <laughs> you would like to think so. You would like to think so for sure. Well, listen, you uh, that's a wonderful story you told about Harvey and and just that speaks volumes about what he what he was as a person. But you've had other instructors who have been influences. Can you just kind of talk about a, a couple of other instructors that you've uh, learned from and, and actually been mentored by through the years as you've gone through the profession? You know, one thing that I'm not sure if you even know about me, I uh, prior to meeting you, I actually played two years of junior college football at Navarro in Corsicana. I was a place kicker there. And one of the great influences, I had no idea at the time, but one of the things that, that I, I, you talk about instructors, you talk about people that influence you. Coach Harold Hearn, who actually is retired now and lives here in San Antonio, um, was my, my junior college football coach up there. And I learned, Mike, so much about, communicating and how to treat players from him playing for him that I didn't realize for many years afterwards. And I, 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 anytime anyone ever asked me that question, I always go back to how much I learned from him. And I, I'll tell you, I was scared to death of him when I was playing for him because he was tough, but <laughs> we were very successful. And what I learned from him was 
people come from bit different backgrounds and, and uh, uh, we had a, a player that I'll re- I, I won't name because of the situation, but he had come from a really rough background. His dad uh, had ended up, uh, had been in jail a bunch. He had kind of been raised by his grandmother and he had a tough, tough background. And we always thought, golly, you know, coach is pretty soft on him where, I mean, if I did something wrong, he'd jump in my grill in a heartbeat, I can assure you. But I, we laughed and talked about this several years later. And I asked him that particular question and he shared that story, story with him. Or about, I mean, about the young linebacker. He said, you know, I promised his grandmother that I would look after him. And he said, Brian, he didn't need anybody beating on him. He had had enough of that. He said, I went fishing with your dad. I knew I could get in your face. (laughs) (laughs) So, So it was one of those situations where he knew what motivated players and he knew how treating certain players certain ways they, he made us better than we were. And, and I think as a coach, that's what everybody wants. You, You know what? You want your players to believe no matter what the situation they can succeed in and that they can be, that they're going to, if they're not successful, I just had a young freshman girl that she struggled mightily after her first round at the state high school golf tournament. It didn't play well, shot in the eighties. She's so much better than that. And she's going to be a wonderful player. So I reached out to her after Monday night after the first round, I said, look, I said, first off, you're a freshman. You qualified to get there individually. You didn't get there as a team. You got there on your own, just like you got out of district on your own. Her team didn't get to region. She got through there. She got to state. I said, you got many great tournaments ahead. I said, but I want you to do something tomorrow. I said, great players respond after a poor round. And I said, I want you to go out tomorrow and I want you to play like a champion. I want you to walk with your head in the air. I want you to walk like a champion and I want you to shoot a good round of golf tomorrow and play the kind of golf that we both know you can play. And I'm proud to say she went out and shot 74 yesterday mm. in a lot worse conditions. And, and you know what? That speaks volumes about it. We're not always going to have a great day, but, but how you respond to that and how you get better, it's, uh, that's, that's what we all want. And, and, uh, I learned that so much from Harold Hearn, um, other coaches, you know, I was very fortunate, Mike, uh, because of my association with Nota Begay, uh, I, I kind of grew, I always say this, I kind of grew up with Nota as an instructor. I started working with Nota before he had any status on any tour. And in, in three years, I, I always kind of preface it as, uh, we went from, from trying to find a place to play to flying private in three years. I mean, it was quite a ride before he got injured. And, and because of that and his relationship with Tiger in 99, 2000, 2001, I got to spend the majority of my time on the PGA tour at events with Nota Begay, Tiger Woods and Butch Harmon. And Butch had a tremendous influence on me as far as just watching how he not, not so much in, in, teaching technique because we didn't discuss that as much as just being around him having the influence of how he handled players the the self-confidence he inspired in his players and how he put together you know uh preparation I, i really learned a lot about how he prepared his players for events and just watching and visiting with nota and seeing it firsthand when you know tiger nota were playing president's cup together as partners and 
uh, had a tremendous influence on me in that regard. So I, I'm a big believer in preparation and trying to get these guys ready, at, you know, at the highest level. And, and um, it also, you know, something that, that it makes you understand that, that there are things you can do at a tournament site two or three days before an event. There's also things you can't do during those times. And, um, you know, you, it's, it's all about knowing the player. And I think the most important thing, and, and I know you would agree with this, I, I th- I'm certain you would, is you have to know that player and, and you have to know how they can respond and what they can handle, what they like, what they don't like. And, you know, I've had the good fortune of caddying for some of my players in some pretty big events and, and just knowing, that, knowing how they respond sometimes, how you can challenge them is, is pretty good. Well, that, that actually brings me to my next question um, that, you know, I know a lot of kids want to go take a golf lesson right before they play in a tournament, which I mean, they're wanting confidence or they're seeking confidence or they're panicking, whatever it may be. But how do you handle a lesson that's two or three days before the kid is headed off to a tournament and say if he had a month or even off season golf lessons? I mean, what is the main difference in those two types of golf lessons? Well, I think, you know, let's, let's address it from the, in kind of reverse, I think from the off season. And one of the things that I think actually is very difficult about this new wraparound schedule for the PGA tour is there's really never a downtime. And I can think back working with, with Noda or with Jimmy Walker, uh, you know, during the off seasons when we evaluated things and made changes to try to get better. And, and now because on the tour, there's really a 12 month season, it's really hard to figure out when to do that. You've got to work with the player and figure out kind of when they want to try to imp there's something, you know, if there's something they want to implement, you've got to figure out when to do it. Now, if I've got a month with a player, I'm going to talk to him and find out where is, where is lack of confidence is. And we're going to build a plan over a month's time. I think you can really do something to, to elevate that that particular uh, situation and bring that confidence up and try to make that a strength. Uh, I, I'm kind of big on somewhat building somewhat of a ladder for lack of a better word, where you keep wanting to bring the bottom to the top. So just like we would climb a ladder, if there's a point of weakness or even self-perceived loss of confidence in an area, I want to figure out how to elevate that where that becomes one of the players most confident you know, performance aspects of their game. So in a month's time, we'll implement some things to do that. In a two or three day session, I want to try to get them focused on their pre-shot routine. I want to try to get them focused on a shot that they can hit under pressure, no matter what. And, and then really more than anything, just make them know that they're, you know, they're as good as they can be. And I'll give you a perfect scenario. Um, Mac Meisner, who you know very well that that I've worked with from since he was in the eighth grade. Um, Mac had been working on something with his swing. Well, when he got an exemption in the Valero this year, he'd been on the road for five consecutive weeks. They'd been to California twice. He flew in, didn't get into like 1.30 in the morning from their tournament at Stanford into uh, San Antonio. And, you know, he's in the, the Pro-Am on Monday. And we've got two days before an event, okay? The club's low and inside and shot, okay? We're still working on that. I, I was working with him on, on FaceTime a few minutes ago uh, before we started this podcast, just trying to get that club back into position. We weren't going to change that two days before the Valero Texas Open 
which I know he's going to be nervous. I mean, he's never played in a PGA Tour event before, so you know he's going to be nervous. You know he's going to have tendencies. So what we tried to do was get it into a manageable position that he could at least know he was going to turn it over, sometimes turn it over more than he wanted, but at least something we could get one constant ball flight with. And that's kind of what we went with. I wish it turned out a little better. He didn't make the cut, but he didn't embarrass himself either. And, and, you know, it's one of those situations where you just have to know the player. Now, after that event was over, I sat down with him the next day and I said, look, we got to fix this. This is the worst you've swung the club since you were in the uh, 11th grade. So we've been working hard for the last month. And I'm proud to say it's a whole lot better this morning than it was. And, and, you know, I was so happy for him. He just got back as I know Cooper did. What a great experience it was for those two young men to be at the Walker cup and, and, and to experience that. And in Max case, he actually got to play a match, which I was incredibly happy for and proud to say he played well. So it, it's one of those situations where you just got to know the player, know what they can handle and what they can't. And uh, I've never been scared though, because after Noda had a really bad round, the first round of the, of the 2000 U.S. Open at Pebble, um, he was he had had some personal things going on. It wasn't in a great place. I took him up to the range at Spyglass after he shot 77 the first day. He was he was getting the club in a bad position, not releasing it very well. We worked on a drill for about an hour and a half, but I, I probably chewed on him for a half hour about his attitude, just saying, "Look, you're you're playing in the United States Open Championship at Pebble Beach." It isn't that bad, okay? And uh, <laughs> a little dose of perspective. Yeah, a little bit of perspective. Uh, I'm proud to say he went out and shot 70 the next round, made the cut, finished 22nd in the U.S. Open, and then won the next two weeks. So hmm. I'm, I'm not terrified to make a change. It wasn't really a change. It's just getting back to where we were. And that's that's what I would say. If you've worked with a player – like a Johnny Kiefer, like I have for as long as I have. Let me tell you what, as a coach, and I want to I want to tell you this, you got my full-on blessing. <laughs> if you ever think that Johnny sees me two to three days before event, an event and I make a, a swing change, you can fire me, okay? Because there's no <laughs> way. If, if, if a coach is making a swing change with a player two or three days before event that they've been working with a long time, uh, that coach doesn't know what the heck he's doing. We should have done that a long time before we got to there. I, I love that philosophy. And honestly, as a college coach, that's really important to know that that a coach would, a swing coach, would be very, very careful not to do something like that. Absolutely. Well, you you mentioned it earlier, caddying for players at tournaments. So I, I've noticed you at tournaments all around. You go and watch your players play. I know you can't do it every day or every week but you do it on occasion and you do it. What, what are you looking for when you're watching a player at a tournament? What do you hope to glean from that experience? I mean, and after the tournament, do you have a summary breakdown where you talk to him about what you witnessed? Absolutely. And I, I think as a coach, that's one of the most important jobs that I have. And, and it is hard because I've got so many young players now. And, and obviously, like you said, you can't go see all the events, but I, I kind of let it work up at kind of a pecking order. Mike, I, I tell a lot of the younger players that, you know, sometimes I'm going to be gone and sometimes I'm going to have to move lessons and different things because I've got to go, go to events. And, and you tend to see me more with the college players and everything, because that's, I, I feel like those guys that you've worked with a long time, they've, they've earned that 
earn that right. And, and what I look for, I want to see how they react under pressure. I want to see where their miss is. I, I want to see their pre-shot routine and how they commit. I think as a player, and I think you see this probably as well as anybody I've ever, ever seen is their level of commitment to the shot and to the process. And, and, and that's, what's so important. You, you know, when a player's not committed and, I'll share a quick story. Um, I was at the USAM this year and I was caddying for Mac and, and Johnny Kiefer was up there as well, but I'd, I'd made a commitment to actually caddy for Mac in that event months before. And um, we get to the 18th hole at Bandon Dunes, the first round. And, you know, he's got his seven under par. We know we're at or near the lead and know he's playing well in the stroke play. And, just having an incredible around incredible round of golf and he pulls a three wood and the, he short sides himself and the, the he's got this huge mound to go over the pins in a tough spot and everything and and, and mac I'll, I'll share this with him he tends to run a little hot as you know <laughs> and i've uh, noticed he, he wasn't happy and he was kind of moaning groaning about oh geez i missed it in the you know the worst possible spot i could and and kurt Max's dad was actually um, standing back behind us, and I walked up on the green with him. I made him walk up there with me, and I made him figure out where we had to hit the shot to have a chance to get it close. And then as we get back to the ball, I literally got right in his face, and I just said, look, you're the best person I've ever taught at hitting this shot of anybody. I said, and I probably used an adjective or two. I shouldn't have. I won't share with our podcast. <laughs> but okay. I got in his face and said, show me something. And I challenged him. It was like, you know what? You're the best I've ever taught on this shot. Show me something. And I'm proud to say he hit it to a foot. I mean, he hit one of the best shots I've ever seen. And his dad told me as we're walking over, he goes, I can't believe you got in his face like that. And I said, you know what? I didn't want him hitting this shot without commitment. I want him to hit this shot to prove something. And that's, I, I think that's a job of a coach. And, and certainly when you're caddying, you're in that situation, you know, the emotions and, and it's harder sometimes to see it. That's why I, I love to actually get on the bag with them occasionally and, and see those things, because I, I think it's so incredibly important to know that player and know what makes them make some tick and I'm looking forward. I'm, I'm going to commit to that. I've already talked to Johnny about it. I'm going to try to caddy for him sometime this summer somewhere, because I, I think that helps me help them much, much more. Well, I appreciate that very much. It's, it's one of the reasons I love coaching is you get to spend time in competition with the player and, and the fun part about it is preparing for it, but then seeing it play out in the competition and then learning from it. But not all, not all swing instructors do that. You're aware of that. There's a lot that stay in the laboratory and never get out. And I encourage all of them. You know, I wish you'd watch. I'll pick a kid. Jimmy, we'll call him Jimmy Smith, just a kid. Jimmy on my team, he would love for you to come out and watch him play. He wants you to see him compete. And I would say that uh, not all of them do that. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful you do it because I know it helps players when you do that. Well, thank you very much. And it's just something that's I'm I'm very fortunate that I've got a wife that understands and knows that's part of the job. And and uh, you know, it's it's one of those situations where our job's to make them the best they can be. And I don't think you can do that if you don't get to see them compete. 
All right, I'm going to ask you another question. That's true. But another question, and I'm going to ask you to give one example of each. Uh, the biggest changes you've seen in the world of instruction since you got in. So I want the biggest good change and the biggest change you think is probably not to our best advantage. So a really great change and not so good change. I, I may throw a, a curveball at you and say both uh, okay. are the same. I think the technology in general, yeah. Uh, and and I'm not going to pick on. I'm going to say the launch monitors. I'm not going to. I'm on Flightscope's board, so I'm certainly not going to bash bash them as being an advisory member of a, a Flightscope. But TrackMan, uh, you know, Quad, G Quad, any of those, they're they're the technology is incredible. Okay, it gives us a, an enormous amount of data. Okay. Now, I think that's a great thing for the instructor to go back to my belief with Harvey on, on the discussion we had about video analysis. It, it verifies that a Trey Bosco was six, seven degrees under plane line. By the way, I, I want to follow up with you. I've got, uh, I've got back-to-back driver swings of that technology I'm going to send you after we hang up on this podcast from yesterday. I, I, saw, two, I, saw, I saw two straight zeros on the path yesterday with a driver and you know how rare that is for anybody. And a year ago right now, Trey wouldn't have, he couldn't have gotten there to save his life, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but he has, and I'm real proud of that. But, but the, the downside of that, and this is where it gets scary is because there's so much data there. I think sometimes a player can fall into the trap of, of totally focusing on all of the data and lose a little bit of how to just make what you've got work under pressure. And, you know, throughout the years, I, I got asked recently to name one of my favorite swings on the PGA Tour. And, and I surprisingly, to the, to the person that asked me the question, I said, Jim Furyk, for sure. Mm, mm. And, and he laughed and he goes, why? And I said, let me explain why. I'm not saying you would teach a player to swing like Jim Furyk. I said, but name me a swing under the years of pressure at the highest level, not necessarily the most talented athletically out there. Name me a player that their swing has withstood the test of time and held up under immense pressure and never changed more so than his. I mean, you look at Lee Trevino. The golf swing never changed. Didn't matter how much the 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 that was on the line, it performed the same under pressure. I, I don't care what you do. If you do it the same every time with, with a little bit of help, I think you can figure out how to make that player get the ball around the golf course in a low number of strokes. And I'm, I'm not saying that it's the most eye appealing. I don't try to teach people to swing that way. I'm just saying from a teaching perspective, get something that repeats itself under the most intense pressure and then build upon that. And that's my philosophy as a coach. All my players don't look like they swing the same. I, I teach Mitchell Meisner, who's Mac Meisner's older brother. Mitchell's 5'8", Mac's 6'3". They're not going to swing alike, okay? But there are inherent qualities of both their swings that you would say that you can tell that a player is being influenced by a coach. But I, I just believe as a, as a coach and as a teacher, you've got to be able to work with that player and help them elevate what they can do under pressure. You are preaching what I've been preaching for a long, long time. Cause I've always said Jim Furyk has one of the most beautiful golf swings in golf. 
if you can get past what it looks like. And if that makes Absolutely. sense, because he hits the ball where he's looking, he trusts that golf swing. So you've preached the sermon I needed to hear today and everybody else needs to hear. If it can repeat itself and if you can trust it under pressure, it's a great golf swing, no matter what anybody says about it. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Well, that is good advice. And I'm so glad you said it. Somebody that's in the world of instruction said it. It's very important to hear. Okay, we're going to do a speed round in a minute. But before we do that, I'm going to ask you one more question. And then the speed round, I haven't given you any sort of preparation for. But I've asked this question from a lot of people, but um, you obviously work with a lot of junior golfers. And I've asked this from former players, current players, PGA Tour players, instructors. I've asked the same question. What is your best piece of advice, one piece of advice that you would give to a 14 or 15-year-old kid who wants to play the PGA Tour one day? What's that advice you think would, if that's only advice you were allowed to give him and he'd never talk to you again, you know that advice would help him? I would ask him, Mike, to try to be as well-rounded person as they can possibly be, not to put golf as the only thing in their life. I think you, you've got to put your your Christian beliefs, your family, your schoolwork, all of that. It's the whole package of as a as a PGA Tour player. It's not about being the best golfer you can be. You be the best human being you can be and let golf be a part of that and your golf will be successful. Mm, that is so good. Thank you for that. Really good there, Brian. I appreciate that. Um, and I, if people listen to that, they'll, they'll glean something from that. But okay, speed round. This is what we're going to end on. So I'm going to ask these questions. I'd like for you to give fairly quick answers, but you don't have to if you need to think about them. Okay. Uh, who would you rather teach, Ben Hogan, Jack Nicholas, or Tiger Woods, and why? Wow. That's, that's a good, good choice right there. Um, I, I've, I've been fortunate. I've actually spent some time around Jack. A lot of time around Tiger. I, I never got to see Hogan play in person, but the person I would like most, I think, would be Jack because I, I just something about his game. I think that part of me as a child, I really looked up as, as you and I know, we grew up in that era where Jack was king and I'd, I'd love to have the opportunity just, you know, and, and that's the thing I want to add to this. I, I can't tell you how much I learned from Jimmy Walker and from Nota Begay and from Johnny Kiefer and, and from all of these players. You learn things from them that that help other players come along. And and I think I, 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 I had the good fortune to spend a lot of time with Tiger, and I always went with a question. Uh, not, you know, when I knew we'd be spending a practice round with him, I wouldn't, wasn't going to be the coach that, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? But during an 18 hole round, there was always going to be an opportunity where I could ask Tiger a question. And I, I would love to have had that privilege with Jack Necklace because I, I just think there's so much there. Wow. That's great. I would have picked Ben Hogan just because uh, it was such a different era that I didn't even get to experience and my dad experienced it. So, but either way, good answer. Uh, favorite course you've actually played. Uh, I would say the favorite por- uh, course I've ever played is Casa de Campo, Teeth of the Dog. Uh, I- I've played Cypress. I've played Pebble. I've been fortunate. I've been on many, many of the great ones, 
but just from a pure enjoyment, I, I had the good fortune to play it many, many years ago, and we, we played it eight straight days, and I mm. never got tired of it. It's just a spectacular golf course. All right, favorite bucket list course, then, you haven't played? Uh, Pine Valley. Nice. Most famous person who's ever taken a golf lesson from you? Doesn't have to be a golfer. Most famous person who's ever taken a golf lesson from you? Oh, I've, I've got a handful, probably George Strait, who I'm, I'm proud to say is a current uh, current person. I love country music. Not a better guy on planet Earth than George. Uh, I've also given a few to Jack Nicholson. So from that world, that's that's a pretty big one as well. And, wow. and I had good fortune many, many years ago as a young assistant pro. I got to play golf with with President Ford. So I didn't give him a lesson, but I'm gonna always throw that in there. That was a pretty special time as well. But but I think the king, the, the king is the king for a reason. So I, uh, I agree probably with you there. most people in Texas anyway, he's gonna be up there pretty high. By the way, with uh, looking at President Ford's golf swing, you better not say that you gave him golf lessons. <laughs> <laughs> I would not have done that. All right, Shawshank Redemption or Remember the Titans. Oh, remember the Titans. Excellent. Okay, I know the answer to this one already, but I'm going to ask it anyway. George Strait or Luke Bryan? Uh, Jordan Strait. Interlock grip or overlap? You know, that's a great question. And, and going back to more people play the overlapping, and most players today do. Uh, however, Jack Nicklaus, Tiger Woods, Tom Kite, all interlocked. You better not better not knock that one too hard because that's three great ones that that use the interlocking grip there. There you go. If you had one person to hit a six foot putt to save mankind, who's that going to be? Wow. Uh, you know, <laughs> obviously in today's world, I, I think you still look back at Tiger. Tiger made more great putts coming down from that length, especially. But you know. How about Rory McIlroy last week, 52 of 52 from six feet and in? But uh, I think you got to go with Tiger Woods. I would go with Tiger Woods. Uh, last question. What's the best investment you've made in golf under $100? Something you purchased. Wow. Best one. Something I purchased under $100, best investment I've made. Uh, I would say from a personal note, uh, my my putter <laughs> that, that I love, but from a from a training mode, one of the great things in golf that I use a ton is still a pool noodle. I, I think it's it's you know you can get them at a dollar in the off season uh, at, at most of your your cheap stores around, but uh, something that I've used a tremendous amount to just help people kind of learn the feel of things. Excellent, excellent. Well. Brian, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on the podcast today. I thought you gave some great insight. I learned some things about you I didn't know, which I'm really glad. And, and you gave some great, great information to our people today. So thank you very much. Mike, it's always a pleasure. And thank you guys. And, and genuinely, uh, I'm so tickled to, to say that I'm going to have another bear coming up your way and Zach Heffernan. And what a great young man you've got coming up there. And, and he's He's someone I've spent a lot of time with since he was 10 years old, and I look to a lot more of our conversations about players over the next few years. You've got some really great ones, and well, thank nothing you. pleases me more than for them to be with you. Well, I appreciate it. Let's just stay in touch, and thanks again, Brian. My pleasure, Mike. And Mikel as well. Thank you, guys. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.